Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, September 5th, 2022. This year, we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Iro. This week, we're talking about the flying fish. Sweet. I actually ran a very short poll on Twitter, and folks who weighed in um, had the most questions about flying fish. And I will say it wasn't a very scientific poll, but here we are, and I'm excited because flying fish are super cool. And gliding is really cool. I mean, it's evolved in a lot of animals. We have flying squirrels and sugar gliders here in the U.S. Uh, There's a few amphibians and reptiles that do gliding as well. But yeah, these fish are pretty unique in terms of this behavior. There's also a flying squid that glides in a similar kind of way. But yeah, it's just kind of a a neat adaptation that these fish have evolved to avoid predators. They're very impressive. You know, when you have like a boat going through the water and it's breaking it and you'll spook one out and it'll just kind of go off. Yeah. They really just glide. It's like watching an awesome frisbee toss where they just you just <laughs> expect them to run out of juice and they just keep going. It's it's awesome. So, Katrina, is there a specific type of flying fish that we're doing? Cuz there's lots of different flying fish out there. So, yeah, there actually are quite a few different species. I've seen a couple different numbers anywhere from like 40 to 60. So, yes, yeah, several dozen of these fish. Some of them have the two wing-like pectoral fins, and those are actually optimized for speed. And then other ones have four wings. So both their pectoral and their pelvic fins, which maximizes more like their time in the air. So, yeah, so there's a, a lot of different species. We are just talking about flying fish in general. The whole family, and all the Exico today is going to be condensed down into this one episode. I, I'm I, okay with that. I'm, I'm no flying fish expert. I got some stats. I'm going to start with those. And then we Go can ahead. just see where the conversation takes us, I guess. <laughs> and the first fun fact is that these fish can glide above the surface of the water about 650 feet or plus. That's about 200 meters. And I was actually looking around and I found some stuff that's that long. So that's almost twice as long as a football field, and that's pretty boring. So it's also as far as the Space Needle is high. That is four Olympic pools, 14 big school buses, and 27 short buses, six or seven blue whales, 108 guys, assuming you're around six feet tall, and 138 Simone Biles. So that's pretty far. Okay. So that's, <laughs> there you go. That's fun fact number one. The second one is how high can they actually glide? And four feet is typical, but they can get as high as 20 feet, which is basically a giraffe. And then the third fun fact I found is that in May of 2008, a Japanese television crew filmed a flying fish off the coast of Japan. And that fish spent 45 seconds in the air, and that beat the previous record of 42 seconds. And they actually named that fish Ickerfish, like Icarus, that Greek dude, Greek mythology who made wings out of feathers and wax and then got too close to the sun and melted his wings. So that is my third fact. Well, okay, that's good. (laughs) Okay, Katrina, so you've mentioned that they can do these great feats of flight. Why does a fish need to fly? They need to be in the water to breathe. So what advantage do they have about going up into the air? Yeah, so these fish actually have some really fast predators, right? So things like swordfish, mackerel, tunas, marlin, dolphins, porpoises, even squid. 
And those are all things that are known for being fast. So these fish have to be able to get away from those bigger predators, right? So these are smaller fish. They're 7 to 18 inches. And they actually glide so they can escape those predators. So it's a it's an adaptive strategy they have where they can actually break the surface and fly. You know, we mentioned 650 feet plus. They can do it multiple times. They actually use their tail to kind of taxi. So once they finish a glide, they kind of touch down with the lower lobe of their tail, beat their tail really fast, and then start another glide. It is actually a really cool point that you bring up about the tail there. In, in fishes, it's not entirely uncommon to see the two lobes of the tail be different sizes, but usually you'll see that's the top lobe that's a bit longer. And I believe the reason for that is that it helps create lift while swimming through the water. However, there's a few species or groups of species out there that have a longer lower lobe on the tail, and the flying fish is one of these. And part of the reason, like you mentioned there, Katrina, is that in between these flights or when they're getting ready to go, they can actually, they don't have to go all the way back into the water. They can just keep their bodies up sort of out of the water and just put that elongated lower lobe of the tail into the surface and propel with that. So they must have really strong caudal peduncles there to be able to keep them out of the water and then start gliding again without even going back down into it. Yeah, they're really built for, yeah, just that whole scene, right? So they have that tail that you mentioned. They have a really rigid body um, as well. So it keeps, you know, it's firm and that actually helps them maintain their flight. And they're fast too. I mean, they can gain speeds underwater upwards of about 40 miles an hour um, and then propel themselves up, catch that wind, catch those updrafts at the surface of the water. If they hit a wave, they can actually fly quite a bit higher depending on kind of how high the waves are. But yeah, they're very interesting fish in terms of how they're built. And they've got really kind of a flat head, it looks like as well. So they, you know, that's kind of typical of fish that are built for living at the surface. These guys are actually eating plankton. They are primarily eating plankton. I do know people will catch them on meat, though. You know, I've seen people who bring them in hook and line. They kind of make a chum slick behind the boat and then put on like an inch long piece of meat and they'll come up and they'll hit that, too. So that's cool. I I suppose they're a bit omnivorous. Are there any fears from these fish about, you know, avian predators? I I know that a lot of times when you're out on the ocean and you see these kind of bait balls where you got all the dolphins and the tunas and everything coming up and chasing them. A lot of times you'll have birds coming down from the top. Are there any fears that these fish might, when they go out, get picked off by a frigid bird or something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. And yeah, they're kind of getting hit from all sides and they have to make a choice if they have a big school of marlin or, you know, some predatory fish, they make that choice to exit the water. Yeah, you need to kind of glide low over the surface of the water so you get out past the dolphins and the fish, but not so high that you're easily picked off by the birds. So it is a kind of tricky existence, I guess. So, Guy, what do you know about the spawning habits of these fish? Well, those Brits, you know, they sure can make a good nature documentary. I tell you what, when I was watching David Attenborough, (laughs) if you've seen the video... You don't have to listen to me. I'm basically going to be recapping the video for you. If you haven't, go watch the video after you finish the podcast. But uh, (laughs) no, so out in the open ocean, you know, you can go for miles and miles and miles at a time with no semblance of any sort of structure. And so even the smallest things out there, whether that be a floating log or a cooler jettisoned off a boat 
or little palm fronds or something like that can really attract large aggregations of fish because it's something to be next to to hide from predators and just it's something that attracts things in the middle of nothing and so these fish are going out looking for things like kelp like a palm frond something that they can attach their eggs to they're these they kind of plant their eggs and they're very sticky and they, they can attach to something that's floating in the water and so you'll get these large aggregations of the flying fish in this one video, like I say, it's great footage that they got. They got this palm frond, and they just, hundreds of them, maybe thousands of them just start gluing their eggs into this mass, and it gets so heavy it starts to sink. The fish, they, they want to get their eggs as much towards the middle as possible because, you know, the eggs that are towards the middle are less likely to get picked off by things trying to, to eat them from the outside. So you get these fish going in and fertilizing eggs on the inside and they'll get stuck and just kind of entombed in this big mass of palm frond and fertilized eggs. And eventually it gets heavy enough that it sinks. They're like, no. <laughs> so that's how you get baby flying fish. Yeah. <laughs> what happens when, what happens if that stuff sinks too deep? Is that like a disadvantage? to where their placement is. I mean, they're trying to stay near the surface, I think, in general, right? You know, I'm not certain. David Attenborough said it was fine. But okay. uh, there, you, you do imagine, like, <laughs> if, if it goes way too deep, yeah, it, it's probably going to be an issue getting back up towards the surface because these little, you, we mentioned, you know, the, even the adults are eating plankton, but they need bigger stuff. But the, the little juvenile flying fish, they can only eat, plankton and you're going to find more of that the, the phytoplankton the zooplankton right towards the surface and these eggs they the period between being fertilized and hatching is only a couple days the little guys that come out and it's actually interesting the juvenile like the just hatched flying fish have these big goofy they're not barbels but they kind of look like barbels coming off the mouth and I've read that the purpose of that is to make them look more plant-like. Like I say, they're, they're attached to these floating masses. So the goal is like, oh, they, they're just blossoms coming off of this. They're not fish. I don't know how well that would fool other critters, but apparently they've been evolved to keep that on. And then they'll, they'll lose those as they get bigger because, you know, it's not very hydrodynamic. Do you know what Exocoda Day means? I do not. I think it translates roughly to one who sleeps outside, like the, the exo parts outside. And I think that's because like early, well, I, th there's a couple hypotheses about where that comes from. Some people used to think that they would sleep on the beach, which I don't know if I buy that anyone ever thought that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do know some stories of people who, you know, they'll be spending time on boats and these fish are known to get stranded on smaller watercrafts because they'll be gliding along and just land on the deck and be able to get out. I've known some people who have had their sleeping bags and stuff out on the boats and then come back to get in and get ready for the night and find dead flying fish in them that have just kind of landed on there. What? So, yeah, so I, I think it translates roughly to one who sleeps outside. That's cool. And that reminds me, I did read something about some of the fishing that's done in some of those southern countries. They actually fish at night with lights. And that attracts the, the fish to kind of fly into their, their nets and their, their boats. So I thought that was pretty cool. Where are we likely to find these, both like in terms of on a map and then also relative to the coastline? 
Yeah, so they live in all of the oceans. They're particularly in the tropical and warm subtropical waters. So we've got them along the Pacific coast. I've actually seen them off the coast of California. I've been out to the Channel Islands a couple of times, out to Catalina, and I've seen them out there. They're also in the Atlantic Ocean, so you can see them down there as well. So you mentioned that you've seen these out on Catalina. I've heard about some, you know, pictures of people riding, flying fish and stuff like that mm-hmm. in association with Catalina. Can you tell me a little bit about those, Katrina? I think that was probably a marketing strategy back in the day. They used to be a big draw to Catalina. I think they still have night tours to go see these fish. But yeah, I was looking through some pictures too, and there are a lot of photos of ladies holding up these fish and people riding these fish. And I think it's just kind of, yeah, one of those fish that has a pretty charismatic look. So that place in particular used them in marketing. I know that in, I think it's Barbados, they are... They're on the dollar coin of Barbados, I know that. Yeah, Barbados is actually known as the land of the flying fish. And the fish is actually one of the national symbols of that country. So I know there are some fisheries for them over in Japan. We mentioned down in Barbados. Do you know what people are using these fish for? Are they eating them? Are they eating certain parts of them? Are they using them for bait? Uh, What is the primary use of the flying fish once harvested? Yeah, it depends on where you are. So I know on the West Coast, folks catch them for things like tuna bait. I was actually seeing some different artificial lures that look just like this fish. They are fished commercially in places like Japan and Vietnam, China, Indonesia, India. And I think one of the popular ways to eat them, um, you can actually eat the roe. So uh, that's used with sushi, tobiko. And then I, I've, I saw a lot of pictures online of just kind of like the whole fish fried. I think there's a lot of different ways folks cook them, but they're kind of like a, maybe close to a sardine in terms of their taste. But yeah, lots of different ways it mm. looks like. I saw some some people cooking them up and it seems like the, the flesh is a little bit whiter and flakier than I would expect for a fish with that kind of lifestyle. What would you expect? I don't know. You, you just imagine some of the fish that are out there chasing them. You mentioned how... Yeah, like tuna or marlin and stuff. Yeah, a little bit different. Tuna, swordfish, your mahi-mahi even, dorado, dolphin fish, whatever you want to call that one, Corey Fainus. You, uh... Get a lot more red meat, a lot of this kind of darker fillets because you have more red muscle tissue because you have these fish that are just traveling long distances and and doing tons of swimming. And so you think these fish are eating a lot of these uh, flying fish. It is one of their favorite foods to eat. You see them in the Guy Harvey paintings all the time. Uh, the, The billfish and the dolphin fish, they're all chasing flying fish. And so it just makes me think like, oh, you'd expect to see something a little bit redder than the meat that I was seeing. But I suppose it might not be the case. They might just be, you know, shoaling up, hanging out in schools and not actually doing all that much Maybe with their their gliding. Yeah, those tunas and different fish. I mean, they got more of the sustained, fast kind of swimming versus these guys. Yeah, maybe they're kind of schooled up in their big groups that they do and then using their anatomy to, to do most of the gliding. It might be related to food as well. I mean, these guys are eating plankton and those other fish are kind of eating up the food chain more yeah i'd be curious about if they have any special adaptations with their gills i mean if they're spending chunks of time above the water i didn't actually find anything concrete about that though so i don't know if you found anything guy but i was just curious about that because you don't really there's not too many fish that yeah do spend a lot of time out of the water they haven't read anything about that but then again you know they're only out of the water for 45 seconds or so yeah and that, that, that's substantial, but at the same time, I don't 
It's it's not as though, you know, we have talked about other species on this show, like the snakehead, where those things can be out of the water for days at a time and, and make it. So in, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know that 45 seconds is all that to be uh, concerned about. But uh, your question's still, you know, valid. I, I do <laughs> wonder, maybe there is something that keeps them moist. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yell to my husband. Um, I think I hear him downstairs, and I, I actually learned this morning that he has a, a flying fish story. So hold on one second. All right. I'll make this story kind of short and sweet. I'm, I'm down in Grand Cayman. We were doing some marine biology, some coral reef surveys, and we get out from diving. And I walk back up into the parking lot, and we're standing there kind of going through our gear, and all of a sudden, I hear a thud right beside me, and I turn, and a fish literally falls from the sky, lands in a parking lot. And I look down, and it's a, it's a flying fish. Like, of all the fish to rain down from the sky, the flying fish is the perfect one. Of course, I'm scratching my head, like, you know, how high do these things fly? And I know they really kind of just skim along the water, but uh, I looked up. I saw some birds. It actually fell from a bird, but that was my one encounter with a flying fish. Pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. So... Anyways, that was my husband. He likes fish too. Bye, Trent. (laughs) (laughs) So this was a kind of people's choice episode. If you've got any flying fish stories or photos, we'd love to see them and hear about them. So tag all the fish on social media. And we hope that everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish, including the flying fish. listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by David Hoffman. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community. Individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.